Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're going to take our Bibles together and turn, please, to the book of Joel. The book of Joel, not a book well known by many New Testament believers, but a book that's rich, especially when the application is considered literally, and the application of the book of Joel has to do with the day of the Lord. This is a book filled with prophecy that makes application and helpful understanding for our times. We're turning to the book of Joel and the first chapter this evening as we read the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten. That which the locust hath left, hath the cankerworm eaten. That which the cankerworm hath left, hath the caterpillar eaten. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land strong and without number, whose teeth are as the teeth of a lion. He hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest, the Lord's ministers mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourneth. For the corn is wasted and the new wine is dried up. The oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen, howl. O ye vineyard dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, the fig tree languisheth, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. Even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves, lament ye priests, and howl ye ministers of the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry unto the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. As destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under their clods, and garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed, because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. O Lord, to thee will I cry. For the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The flame hath burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee. For the rivers of waters are dried up, and the fire that devoured the pastures of the wilderness. There are certain words and phrases that are used in the study of prophecy that require some measure of definition and understanding. So, for instance, were I to say, we're talking right now about the time of Jacob's trouble. What would the time of Jacob's trouble be in Scripture? How would you define the time of Jacob's trouble? Yes, Loy? Tribulation. 
the tribulation, exactly right. The tribulation, also called the great tribulation, is also called and introduced in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's trouble. And that sits well with me theologically because I believe that the purpose of the tribulation is not for the church, but the purpose of the tribulation is for Israel. In Daniel chapter 9, 77s are determined upon thy people, Daniel, and upon thy holy city. That's Jerusalem and Israel. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when we read about the time of Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament, we're reading about the tribulation. What if I were to say, we're talking now, prophetically, about the last days? When exactly is the last days? I'm hearing it. Good. It's now. The last days are the church times. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. And we read, 1 John says, Little children, it is the last days. So we're in the last days. Now this evening we're talking about another one of those titles that we have to know how to land it how to define it. We're talking about the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. So does anyone want to venture a guess as to the time of the day of the Lord? Okay, part of it. That's exactly right. Terry has said millennial. That's part of the day of the Lord. Mary? That's part of it. So let's look at it. What are we talking about when we talk about the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord, or equivalent terms in the Old Testament, such as that day or that great day, occurs 75 or more times. This is a big one. This is a word that we want or a phrase that we want to understand if we're going to understand and read our Bible literally with good understanding of biblical prophecy. In his book, The Theological Messages of the Old Testament Books, Robert Bell gives careful attention to the concept of the day of the Lord, saying this, Someday, man's time is going to run out. It will be God's turn to possess time and to do with it as he pleases in consideration of what man did with the time when he possessed it. God is going to repossess time. And it will be the day of the Lord. Now, I want to be clear. When we speak of the day of the Lord, we're not talking about a 24-hour period. Typically, in the Old Testament, when we read the word day or the Hebrew word yom, it's a 24-hour period. And that's especially important when we read of the creation account that God created in seven literal days. But there are also other ways the word day can be used. For instance, In Psalm 20 and verse 1, we read of a day of trouble. It's not talking about a 24-hour period. It's talking more about an era in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 14. Similarly, we read about the day of prosperity. It's not talking about a 24-hour day. It's talking more about an era. So in simple terms, when we talk about the day of the Lord, it's a time in which God will take direct control over the affairs of men. Now, 
The words I use there are really important. The day of the Lord, a time in which God will take direct control over the affairs of men. What words are especially important in that sentence? Direct control. God is always in control. The book of Daniel makes that abundantly clear. The God that we serve rules in the heavens and on the earth. But there's a time coming when the control will be direct and not indirect. Indirect control is called providence. Still with me tonight? Okay. So what's the difference between a miracle and providence? A miracle is the direct intervention of God putting aside the rules of nature that he's established. When Jesus says, peace be still and the waters become still, that's a miracle. Providence is I'm praying for 50 bucks and somebody comes up to, the, to me in the foyer this evening and hands me an envelope and it's 50 bucks. God worked through secondary cause. That's providence. Today, God is working in the world through secondary cause primarily. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whithersoever he will. He lifts up one and puts down another. Joe Biden is in the White House this evening. I know this might be hard for some people to hear because God put him there. And we're to pray for him. And we're to expect that God can turn his heart the way he wants to turn his heart. That's not direct. That's indirect. That's providential. But one day, God's going to repossess time. And that day is called the day of the Lord. You see, we are currently living in what the Bible calls man's day. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, hidden in the language of the King James Version is a phrase that's really interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3, but with me, it's a very small thing, a microcosmic thing, that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yeah, judge not myself. That little phrase, man's judgment, the Greek language there actually reads man's day. Judgment's helpful. It helps us to understand what he means there is man is ruling, man is judging. I'm not bound by it's a small thing for me to be judged by man's judgment, the systems and the culture of the world. That's what Paul is saying. But literally, he's saying, with me, it's a small thing to be judged in man's day. Today, right now, we're living in man's day. But the rapture is coming. And in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, we read, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, ready for this? Can you finish it? Until the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, there's another day coming. Right now we're living in man's day, but there's the day of Jesus Christ, and the day of Jesus Christ is the rapture of the church. What a glorious day that's going to be. And then following the day of Jesus Christ, we have the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord follows the rapture, and the day of the Lord ends with the millennial rule of Jesus. It follows the rapture and ends with the millennium. Take your Bibles and turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. There are some who are in the service this evening who 
will soon be traveling to Israel. And always, 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 when standing on the Mount of Olives in Israel, I love to read Zechariah 14. Because Zechariah 14 says in verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations, as when he fought in the day of battle. Okay, did you notice verse 1? Behold, the day of the Lord comes. What's going to be happening here according to this passage? All the nations of the earth are coming against Jerusalem. What would we call that in biblical prophecy? When all the nations surround Jerusalem, you are looking at Armageddon, all right? So it's part of the day of the Lord. But we read on, look at verse 4, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a great valley. Half the mountain shall be removed toward the north, half toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, and the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee like you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. The Lord my God shall come, and all, his saint, all the saints with thee, It will come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. It shall come to pass that at evening time it will be light. It shall be in that day that living waters shall go from Jerusalem. Oh, who's going to stand on the Mount of Olives? Jesus. And when Jesus comes and his foot touches the Mount of Olives again, because that's the place from which he ascended up into heaven. That mountain is going to split, folks. There's going to be a new river. The geography of Israel is going to change. And the river coming out of Jerusalem is going to flow down into the Mediterranean. And we read verse 11, and at the end of the verse, Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Now, he's talking about the day of the Lord. It started in verse 1, the day of the Lord. Armageddon's part of that. The return of Christ is part of that. Now, when Jerusalem is safely inhabited... He talks about the conditions. He says in verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone that's left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of the Tabernacles. What's that called? That's the millennium. That's the kingdom. So when we're defining the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord begins in the tribulation and moves clear through to the millennial kingdom. God has repossessed time. Man's day is over. The day of Christ has come and the rapture has occurred. Now you're in the day of the Lord. And did you know there's one other day that's revealed in the Bible? That last day that's revealed in the Bible is the day of God. The day of God follows the millennium. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 28. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. All things will be subdued unto him, and the Son himself will be under him that put all things under him. So everything will be under God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ as well, that God may be all in all. 
That's the day of God. That's the eternal state. When you study prophecy, there are some things that we read over in haste and without understanding the definitions, we can get in trouble. On the day of the Lord, when we talk about the day of the Lord, the Bible talks about the day of the Lord in two ways. It's both a day of judgment and it's a day of blessing. 75 references to this theme, it's a big theme. When it comes to the topic of judgment, we read in Isaiah 2 and verse 12, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that's proud and lofty. And everyone that's lifted up, he shall be brought low. Isaiah 13, verse 9, How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. And we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, this verse you should know well. For the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. And when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them as upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The day of the Lord is a big theme in the Bible, and often it's talking about destruction. When during that day of the Lord would the destructive part be happening? Well, it's happening during the tribulation, exactly right. The tribulation is a time of darkness. It's a time of destruction. But the day of the Lord turns and becomes a time of blessing. And so you'll read about the day of the Lord in Obadiah, verses 15 through 17. For the day of the Lord shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Wow, that sounds really good. Because the end of the day of the Lord is the millennium. It's the kingdom, and it's wonderful. So we read in Joel 2 and verse 14, he will leave a meat offering and a drink offering in the day of the Lord. And Joel 3 and verse 18, it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down dew and new wine and the rivers shall flow with milk. Renal Showers in his book, Maranatha, Our Lord Come, says, the day of the Lord in the future will at least be twofold in nature. Just as each, now listen to this, this is really cool. Just as each day of creation in the Jewish day is consistent of two phases, a time of darkness or evening followed by the light or day, so the future day of the Lord will consist of two phases, a period of darkness or judgment followed by a period of light or divine rule and blessing. So how do the Jews mark their days? Evening till morning. And you read that in Genesis chapter 1. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And the evening and the morning were the third day. That's how the Jews looked at a day. We look at sunup and say, new day. They said, no, a new day starts at sundown. And so understanding that, now you understand the concept of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of darkness followed by light. And by the way, how confirming when we consider our timeline of prophecy that that time of darkness, that judgment, that tribulation is followed by the light of the millennial glory. All right, we've been down tapping on the day of the Lord a little bit. By now you ought to have a little bit of a definition in mind when we talk about the day of the Lord. And the Bible talks about it a lot. It is a big theme. When the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, 
It's talking about that time from the tribulation through the millennium. And after the millennium is done, and the earth will be no more. It's no longer the day of the Lord, now it's the day of God. Today, we're in the last days, the church time. We're looking forward to the day of Christ, Philippians 1 and verse 6, when He will come at the rapture. As we open our Bibles to Joel chapter 1, we discover something that's sometimes used by God to get the attention of His people. Sometimes God allows a shocking event to awaken the spiritually slumbering people. And that's exactly what's happening in Joel chapter 1. In Joel chapter 1, there's a shocking event that's spoken of. The name Joel, common name still used today, means Jehovah is God. We read in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel. This is how so many of the Old Testament prophetic books begin. The word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord came. There are those who believe that Joel is the oldest of the writing prophets and put the date of Joel somewhere around 800 to 900 B.C. They put it there because some of the themes that will come later in the prophets are not found in Joel. But the truth is, the only thing we know about Joel specifically and factually is he was the son of Pethuel, the son of Pethuel. Pethuel means either vision or wisdom of God. We don't know how old Joel was when he wrote. There are many who assume that Joel ministered in Judea, that he lived in Jerusalem because the temple and its worship are referred to regularly in the book of Joel, but we don't know. It seems like God wants to hide Joel's person in order for us to make sure to get Joel's message. And the messenger is hid behind the message in this book. And while we know little about Joel, he has a message that he shares that transcends every culture, every era, and meets us exactly where we live today. Here's part of the message of Joel. Joel understands that natural catastrophes are given by God to garner our attention, to help to warn us. To help us to recognize things about God that otherwise we wouldn't consider. So Joel's going to speak about a plague of locusts that entirely wipes out the region that he's addressing. There are no foods left for sacrifice, no animals left. The trees have been stripped bare. This natural disaster, if you will. But what you come to learn is there's no such thing as a natural disaster. We don't believe in Mother Nature. We believe in Father God. And Father God controls the things of this earth. And so, when we open to the book of Joel, we need to be reminded that God is in control. And He wants us to see that in these natural disasters, there's, a, there's an arrow pointing, if you will, toward a future date. So the locusts are pointing to something else. The locusts are pointing to the day of the Lord. This disaster is used by God, by the prophet Joel, to point, he says in verse 15 of chapter 1, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. 
Chapter 2 and verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh. It is nigh at hand. What is it that, that causes Joel to be thinking about this time that we've now defined? It starts in darkness and ends with light. It's a natural disaster. Natural disaster has come, the plague of locusts, and Joel is burdened about the day of the Lord. So he says in chapter 2 and verse 11, The Lord shall utter His voice before His army, for His camp is very great. He's strong that executes His word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? And again in chapter 3 and verse 14, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Back in 1992, there was a hurricane that came through Florida. That hurricane was named Hurricane Andrew. Helicopters were dispatched to get people out of their flooded homes. One of the helicopters that went over the flooded homes of Florida came over the shingles of one house, and over the shingles of that house, someone had written, Leave us alone, God. Somebody was responding to the hand of God, but not responding like Joel responds and not responding like we should respond. Natural disasters are often given by God to garner our attention. Isaiah 45 says in verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace, ready for this, and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Oh, time out. Let me read that verse again. Isaiah 45, 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. You ever puzzled over that verse? He's not talking about moral evil. He's talking about calamity. Calamity. So I'm going to read it that way. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Take your Bibles and go to Ezekiel chapter 5. Ezekiel chapter 5. In Ezekiel chapter 5, the 17th verse, God says, So, I will send upon, your, upon you famine and evil beast." And they shall bereave thee, and pestilence and blood shall pass through thee. I will bring the sword upon thee. I, the Lord, have spoken it. Wow. Famine, evil beast, pestilence, and blood. Ezekiel chapter 14. Look what he says in verse 19. Ezekiel 14 and verse 19. God says, Or if I send a pestilence into that land, and pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off it, man and beast. Though Noah and Daniel and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my four sword judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword, the famine, the noisome beast, and the pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. So who sent COVID-19? Oh, a Chinese lab. By the way, I believe that's where it came from. But behind the lab, there's a God who says, I'm in control. And when it came, 
I remember when it was first announced, I was visiting with someone in an office in Carmel, and well-educated lady, very respected lady, said to me, what do you think's happening with this, with this uh, virus? Do you think God's doing something? To my knowledge, I don't think I was talking to a born-again lady, but what an opportunity to say, yes, I do think God's doing something. The pestilence and earthquake, the fire and the sword, the natural disasters, remember what Joel does? He says, oh, that reminds me of something. When I see this famine, I'm reminded of the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is going to start out with terrible disasters. Just look at what the tribulation is all about. How are we supposed to respond? How were the children of Israel supposed to respond to these disasters when they came? Take your Bibles and come with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. You're going to find this passage really familiar. When God sent disasters, He had a way that He wanted His people to respond. He has a way that He wants us to respond as well. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the 14th verse. Let's start in verse 13. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I sent pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then shall they hear, I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. There's a promise we know well. What should motivate the people to pray in this way? When they see locusts, pestilence, how should we respond to natural disaster? This is how not to respond. You don't respond by saying, don't blame this on God. And I chose my words carefully there. There are a lot of Christians who say, well, we don't want to blame this on God. And we live in a culture like that, that denies God's power in the midst of calamity. But God claims to have the power to send calamity. And when he sends calamity, he wants to get our attention, not just for the now that we pray, but so that we're thinking about the tomorrow, the day of the Lord. Is this a precursor to the coming calamity that's going to crisscross the globe? It well may be. That's how Joel thought. He thought of the calamity, the locust coming as a precursor pointing to the day of the Lord. So Joel is saying in chapter 1, look at the locusts. You've never seen it like this before, Joel chapter 1. Hear this, ye old men, verse 2. Give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days or even the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. Let their children tell their children. And the children of another generation, tell them what? That that which the palmer worm hath left, the locust hath eaten. Don Herman's in the service this evening. I get a kick out of his email address. It's a uniquely an email address for a man who taught uh, biology for many years uh, in the high school. His email address starts with, I bug you. I bug you. I thought about that when I read verse 4. The palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, and the caterpillar. Most Bible students say these are all Hebrew words speaking about the four phases of an invasion of locusts. 
whether it be the larva phase or the chewing phase or the licking phase. But the locust, when they swarm and when they come through an, an area, piece by piece, he's going to say they have eaten it all. He says in verse 10, the field is wasted, the land mourneth, the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried, the oil languisheth. The barley harvest of the field is perished, verse 11. Those four phases have come through. This is a one-of-a-kind locust plague. And so Joel says, let the fathers think about it, the elders think about it. Have you ever seen it like this before? Tell your children and let those generations tell other generations, remember this, you've never seen it like this before. That's what he's saying. He's saying, wake up, God's doing something. Now, we're not commissioned as prophets like Joel. So I don't get up on a Sunday after a tornado has come through southern Indiana or even central Indiana and say, folks, I think this is a precursor to the tribulation. But I should say, hey, folks, we need to see the hand of the Lord in this. And we need to know that the Lord wants to garner our attention. And when we see a natural disaster or some form of something that's never been seen before, some demonstration of God's righteous judgment, like COVID-19, like AIDS, my, did people respond and react when believers were saying, isn't it interesting that the only people that are now being affected and dying are living in the homosexual community? Oh, you can't say that, really. I think we can. I think we can say that about monkeypox right now, but I haven't heard anybody saying it. But that's who it's afflicting. Well, the counter-argument, well, what's the difference between that and venereal disease? Nothing. Venereal disease is the hand of God saying, don't do that. And monkeypox and AIDS is the hand of God toward that community saying, don't do that. No difference. Should we be alert when we see such things? Absolutely. That's what Joel is doing in this passage. He's not saying no big deal. Just, it's just locust. Coincidental. Oh, no. He's saying God has let this happen. By the way, if you're looking around and listening, wasn't too long ago, the, boat, the biggest hurricane in the history of our continental United States hit where? Yeah, New Orleans, hmm, coincidental, coincidental. And, oh, another coincidence that's just been amazing to see recently, fires and floods and earthquakes in California. Yeah, just coincidental. Really? I don't think so. Joel wouldn't have thought so. Joel would be putting those things together and saying, God's trying to get your attention. Are you listening? And so we look in this passage and he says, these are unparalleled disasters. These are unparalleled disasters disasters. And they are bringing about an undeniable crisis, an undeniable crisis. And so he talks about that crisis throughout the first chapter, how that everything seems to be eaten up by these locusts. Verse 7, he's laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. In other words, all the bark has been eaten off. He's made it clean, bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. There's no bark on the branches anymore. I was in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago. Had a problem with a connecting flight. And so I booked out a flight on Saturday morning. 
and I had to spend the night in a hotel room. The flight that I was supposed to get on Saturday morning was to leave at 6.10 in the morning. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get up at 4.30, and I'm going to get all ready, and I'll be over to the airport by 6.10. I rolled over in bed and looked at my alarm, and it said 5.25 a.m. You ever had that happen? It's like, I set that thing for 4.30 a.m., I'm going to miss my flight. I mean, I jumped out of bed faster than I think I've ever jumped out of bed. Uh, I won't talk about my hygiene habits, but let me just say there was no shower taken. And I made it to the airport on time. My heart was still pumping 100 miles an hour. My alarm had failed me. Joel is writing a warning. The alarm isn't failing. God is saying, when these disasters happen, wake up, pay attention, listen up, he says. The famine and the drought ought to be understood as wake-up calls. And there's personal responsibility that is reflected upon in this passage. He calls upon the elders to be witness of what God is doing. You tell your children and you let your children tell their children. You've never seen it like this before. He talks to the drunkards and he says, you drunkards need to weep. Awake, ye drunkards, verse 5, and weep and howl, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it's cut off from your mouth. It's affecting everyone. Everyone has a personal responsibility in this, whether you're old or living luxuriously like a drunkard or a farmer. The farmers are commissioned to wail, lament like a virgin, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth, verse 8. For the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest and the ministers mourn because the field is wasted and the land mourns. And the priest, something interesting, he says to the priest. The last portion of the chapter, he says, gird yourselves. Get dressed. Yes, you're lamenting, but you ought to be working. Howl, you ministers of the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of God, for the meat offering and for the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Sanctify you fast. Call a solemn assembly. Get to work. Ask the people to respond with you toward a holy God. Interesting, I was talking to Derek Thomas about situations in Ukraine. And he noted that the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, nobody's going to church. But the church is out in the fields, and the church is in the barns, and the places where people can gather. They, they don't have space. And I asked, what's the difference? It's not just the message. He said, the Ukrainians know that when the disaster came, none of the Orthodox priests were out there in the fields with them. And the people who have the gospel are sharing bread, and they want to come to the services. When the time of crisis comes, he's basically saying here, you priests get to work. Gird yourselves up. Invite people to the prayer meeting. There's personal responsibility and there's prophetic revelation. In verse 15, he says, oh, this reminds me of the day of the Lord. Joel says that present afflictions ought to awaken us of the affliction of judgment to come. This is the type and there will be an anti-type. The type, an image, the anti-type, the fulfillment. And even so, with the disasters that we see round about us, the type ought to remind us of the anti-type, the fulfillment. Sometimes God, wake, God wakes up, calls are for nations. Sometimes they're personal, but every wake-up call comes as a reminder of the power and the plan and the promise of God. Father, dismiss us with your blessing. Thank you that we can be in your word. Help us to look round about us and know that the hand of the Lord 
rules in the affairs of the world. And there's a day coming when you're going to repossess time. Until that day when the type is fulfilled, help us to be looking around and realizing that our God wants our attention. And may we weep and mourn when we say things happening as we've even seen happening in recent days. And know and warn that the Lord Jesus Christ is nigh at hand. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you as you go this evening. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.